Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast from the Kellogg Institute here at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Patrick McQuestion. I'm a PhD student in Peace Studies and Political Science here at the Kroc Institute, which is part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Today, we are very fortunate to have with us Dr. Richard Drew Marcantonio, researcher, teacher, and practitioner focused on regenerative and durable livelihoods, environmental management, and peace building. Drew is a graduate from the Kroc Institute of International Peace Studies and currently at the Mendoza College of Business here at Notre Dame. Uh, He's also the author of many pieces, including Environmental Violence in the Earth System and the Human Niche, a book from Cambridge University Press published in 2022, co-author of the textbook Environmental Management, Concepts, and Practical Skills from 2022, and lead co-editor with John Paul Lederach and Augustine Fuentes of Environmental Violence Explored, which is in press currently from Cambridge University Press. He has also published in a wide variety of journals on the topic of environmental management and violence and peace. Drew, welcome to the program. Thank you. Very happy to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. Thank you for being with us. Your recent research has has centered on environmental violence and peace building. This research agenda straddles both the sciences and the humanities, and it's motivated by a sense of urgency and what I would say is existentialism. So before we discuss, I guess, your latest research on environmental violence, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to frame your research on environmental issues. What were some of the life experiences that motivated your research today? Sure. So most of my connection to the environment just came from my own personal affinities for um, enjoying the outdoor spaces and seeing how those open up new experiences and a sense of discovery that seems to be somewhat lacking in a lot of human experience these days, just given how much is already laid out in front of us and what you might call the built environment by other humans. So I enjoyed that that sort of sense of exploration, etc. And I also grew up working on a farm. Uh, and doing a lot of ranch work even. Uh, and so this kind of connection in human, non-human species, um, being out in nature, what have you, is just also part of just my formation. And so carrying that forward, my first real exposure to thinking about this in context of violence and, and peace building, uh, I worked in Afghanistan for a few years. And oddly, while there was the kinetic components of it, given the work that I was doing and, and tasked to do, the vast majority of the work I ended up doing was in agricultural development work and water access, water quality type work um, for both farming needs and for household water needs. And we started looking at how the two ways now that I, that I think about the environment and violence is both the environment as a source of violence, as a causal mechanism potentially, or at least exacerbating the conditions that lead to direct violence, mm. as you might call it. Um, So as an example, one of the main crops that people were producing was opium or or, or poppy to then turn into opium. And this became a a source of direct violence, either over competition for land to do that, or for once it was cultivated, which is a very labor-intense process, transporting it, you were always at risk of being in direct violence from being being stolen or so many different issues that could lead to direct violence from that, or the fact that it was the um, many of the funds developed from that 
were used to fund direct violence acts. So mm-hmm. the Taliban, for example, worked as couriers for the Haqqani network. Haqqanis would pay them, and then they would come back right after the opium cultivation season ended and started what was called the fighting season. It was a recurring event um, every year. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of May, every year in Afghanistan, you can, it, it would, the fighting would pick up because of all the new funds that would have arrived from the harvest. So there's this link between environmental ends and direct violence. But also we started seeing ways in which the environment itself or environmental vectors, and I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later, how these themselves become a human-produced form of direct violence. Rob Nixon calls this slow violence, which I think is a, a great foundation for this. It's also what environmental justice movement is about. This is the primary form of environmental injustice. Then there's all the policies and things that are associated around it that create more of the structural violences of it. Mm-hmm. But that is the environmental violence, the, the vector. And so... Later, um, I started looking at a bit more of that and actually retrospectively understanding my experiences in Afghanistan. So as an example, Mm -hmm. uh, I slept next to a burn pit for two years and now I know the exposures. Now I know the science about the exposures that I had during that period and it's it's actually not good. But it started, so I had this kind of firsthand experience that unfortunately is not unlike many people around the world. And so I started thinking of it in a different light that we have this this environment as as a source of potential contention, also cooperation, right? Because we used it as, to, to focus on it as a form of cooperation. Um, but this relationship with direct violence or for peace building against direct violence also looked at it as a form of uh, environmental violence. So these vectors, material vectors that are produced that directly harm folks. And so that experience in Afghanistan actually was a very formative in both, but also given my own experiences and issues that led to me leaving the Marine Corps from in service to think about how to use these experiences and, and knowledge of the environment as a, as a vehicle for peace building um, is something that can, it can be one of our greatest sources of cooperation. And so often these can offer opportunities and in fact satisfy the needs of most involved even um, and, 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 rec- and work against a lot of the inequalities that tend to be at the heart of these issues, whether it's environmental violence or the direct violence associated with environmental stressors. Thanks for that. Yeah, that brings a lot of uh, questions to the fore. And um, so now turning into sort of the academic realm, you introduce or you you elaborate on the topic of environmental violence in a recent paper co-authored with anthropologist Dr. Agustin Fuentes, and he's at Princeton. He's mm-hmm. an anthropologist. You were trained in anthropology as well mm-hmm. and anthropological methods. Um, and so you defined uh, environmental violence as the direct and indirect harm experienced by humans due to toxic and non-toxic pollutants put into a local and concurrently the global ecosystem through human activities and processes. And you also use this concept of material vectors, which you alluded to, uh, intentional excessive human consumption of resources and energy well beyond what is needed to maximize flourishing, arguing that this responds to an ongoing dialectic of determining configurations and boundaries. So in other words, it's a flexible conceptualization, I would, yeah. I would say. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate on how you, how you arrived at this idea of a dialectic of excessive material damage. How is this conceptualization of a dialectical pattern different from other definitions mm-hmm. of environmental violence? And how does it inform your approach to environmental management today? Sure. So one of the challenges that we have been thinking about the ve- material vectors as a form of violence. So when we're thinking of material vectors, it's all of the outputs from human production and consumption um, that arise that are then are emitted into our shared ecosystem. Now, some of that acts locally. So toxic pollution, for example, tends to stay in the general areas where it's produced, 
or at least in the vicinity. Now, there is what you call transboundary air pollution, for example, that crosses political boundaries, but it still tends to be in somewhat closer proximity than if for non-toxic pollution. So non-toxic pollution, and this is the way environmental managers think about it, which is with the training that I received um, before coming here or before coming to, to Notre Dame was in, in, in um, environmental management mm-hmm. and thinking how this is looked at from a policy and then management, meaning the implementation of policies perspective. And so non-toxic pollution are those pollutants that are not toxic to the human body, but can still have detrimental effects, right? They're, they're shifting something in an ecosystem that they can have realized effects that are harmful both to humans and non-human species. So greenhouse gases are predominantly we'd call as non-toxic, right? The levels at which you're generally exposed don't harm the human body. You're breathing in a bunch of carbon dioxide right now because we're both emitting it as we're respirating and then taking in each other's what have you, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so it doesn't have this direct negative effect on the human body, but as it's emitted, it then ends up changing atmospheric composition such that then we have climate change, right? Mm. So we have the, these different vectors, and we have to think about them differently. And there's also different ratios which we might consider necessary to maximize human flourishing, right? So the food you eat, um, the clothes that you wear, other materials, the, the shelter that you live in, some of these requirements have a pollution component um, that's always going to be present. People talk about circular economies and trying to internalize everything. One, I don't actually see that as a viable future is what we can get to, but we don't necessarily need to. The the ecosystems are great at absorbing a certain level of pollution. What we're finding, and clearly, is that we have a small portion of the human population that is grossly exceeding what is needed to sustain, Um, and also taking under undertaking a a whole range of activities that are not even great for maximizing human flourishing, what we might call flow experience or optimal human behavior. Thinking about the work of a, of a woman named Amy Asham here, who's empirically demonstrated that a lot of the activities, particularly in modern elite societies that are actually detrimental to the human experience, and there's many others that are much more materially sustainable, um, that have uh, higher rates of return of what we would call flow, this idea from a Hungarian psychologist named Csikszent Mihai, uh, who developed this idea in the 70s and 80s. And the idea then being that there's a certain amount of material, and this is where the dialectic comes in, because depending on the ecology that you live in, right, the geographic reality, so whether it's living in forest areas, living in savannah, living near mountains, living near the coast, away from the coast, there's this shift in how much, and also the stage in your life, how much material is needed, right? So mm-hmm. when you're younger versus when you're older, um, what your body needs in order to maximize its functioning, what have you, and to be its healthiest self. This is going to be different, and that's where this dialectic portion comes in. Most importantly in this dialectic too, in our, in our modern questions of how to deal with environmental issues, is the kind of gross inequity that's undergirded a lot of our current problems with environmental stressors, given the outsized impact of a very small portion of the population, predominantly Western Europe and the United States, as having the most outsized effect on these, whether it's from you know, current greenhouse gas emissions or historical emissions, or uh, material consumption rates mm. um, that are substantially higher in both areas. Now, obviously, within, even within those societies, there's gross inequities between upper echelons and lower echelons by socioeconomic status. So that's where this dialectic question of even shifting and, and what would be, when does a, a level of emissions become violence because it is unnecessary? And then the material, because it is material and of our technology today, we can measure it. It's a choice not to. Mm-hmm. We had the technology to measure the vast majority of the toxic and non-toxic pollution that we're producing as humans and even to mitigate a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Now, the best mitigation strategy is simply use less. <laughs> like people talk reduce, reuse, recycle, whatever. Yes, reduce. I mean, much could be cut off. 
and, and, and not is, is wholly not needed to maximize flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's this dialectic is figuring out things because it's not a fixed point of like, okay, you get this allotment, you get this allotment. There's variations in this, and particularly when we want to take into the, the, the question of equity, which is essential given how much inequality has been um, wrought in this process to date. Right. Thanks, thanks for that uh, explanation. And it brings to mind certain political issues I could imagine about <laughs> what it means to be a flourishing human. You know, and individual liberty, among mm-hmm. other things. Um, yeah, actually, if, I, if you wouldn't mind, if I, so one on that individual liberty, this is a, a discussion that I had yesterday because that's something that people often bring up is, I, well, I don't want to be regulated or restricted from these other practices. But in fact, many regulations are in the pursuit of the freedom of others because there's the individual freedom mm-hmm. and then there's your individual freedom and then the collective freedom. And if I'm producing emissions that directly harm you, I'm limiting your freedom. I'm limiting your choices. That is a form of violence. Right? Like I, and we go call it structural violence, but it's from this material vector. So that's why mm-hmm. I think of it as environmental violence is that vector. And it's the cultural norms that facilitate it, hence the cultural violence connection. But it is addressing a question of freedom because most folks who make those arguments of, well, you're stifling business, you're stifling this, that, and the other. No, in fact, you're protecting the freedoms of others Mm -hmm. for your own wants. And as we can kind of get to later, there's no reason why this has to be antithetical to production in ways. And that's what makes it even worse, some some aspects, because it is wholly preventable while still producing and meeting material needs of all humans. Right. Wow, thanks for that. And um, obviously, there are different contexts in which environmental violence takes place. And one of these contexts are conflict-affected areas, like you mentioned, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned uh, in your papers, uh, Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. Colombia. So you provide sort of a model for assessing environmental violence using this dialectic approach. Uh, it's composed of four interconnected elements, structural, cultural violence, which you alluded to just now, material vectors of environmental violence, which we've been talking about, but also vulnerability um, of this could include infrastructure. Um, this could also include just human vulnerability. And then also harm and power differentials, which is something which mm-hmm. we were just describing a little bit. So given your experience in, in conflict-affected areas like Sierra Leone or Colombia, could you discuss the role of peace negotiations? Mm-hmm. Not to jump too far away from our conversation, but mm-hmm. the idea that there's also these other macro-level negotiations occurring uh, sometimes around very direct forms of violence, mm-hmm. um, and how that interacts with environmental management today. Yeah. Uh, so do they provide opportunities to break with the status quo, mm-hmm. or does this sort of take a back seat to questions of ceasefire, or socioeconomic equitability during negotiations? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting questions, I think, to think about even on the scales of this and also realized impacts. When I use as an example, I mean, on the peace negotiations, this is everything from the folks that work in on a daily basis in Afghanistan deciding where the next sluice gate for gravity-fed irrigation is going to go was an opportunity for peace negotiation around an environmental challenge. Two, we're in conversations now about thinking about how the environment should be included in a potential agreement with the the recent ceasefire between the Colombian government and the EMC and how explicitly to include it. That's something we're doing with with Pam. So 
there's at many different scales in which you can think about this on the, the peace negotiation side. There's also some of the realized impact side. And so as an example, I was having a conversation about my views on environmental violence and it being the single largest source of early mortality and, and therefore the largest form of violence, practice global, or one of the largest forms and has certainly all sorts of intersectional components for it. Um, actually, one of our colleagues, Garrett Fitzgerald, just wrote an awesome paper on the intersectionality of environmental violence um, that I look forward to, to seeing out soon. But on this conversation that I had, the, the person pointed out, uh, well, you know, in, in Kigali, they're not, they're, they're not going yeah, to be as concerned about these environmental components until you can stop the physical violence. Well, if you look at the data, uh, for example, there's substantially more people even in that location. Uh, in, many, in most kind of conflict-affected areas, uh, people dying early as a function of toxic pollution exposure than the conflict itself. Now, that's not the case, for example, in the Russian War of Aggression currently, mm. right, or thinking in Israel-Hamas currently. Now, you could say, well, over the time, future time, because of the thousands of years that many of these pollutants take before they um, naturally decay, or unless you actively remediate them, which is extremely expensive on average, um, that there could be a larger death toll in the end. Okay, maybe, but I'm saying the, the the direct violence tends to be the most salient thing that people focus on. Um, and one of the data points that I point to in, in trying to make this argument is that if you look at the average number of warfare deaths, now the, it would grow when you start adding. Um, this does include civilian deaths, but it doesn't include, for example, malnutrition or deaths from forced migration, et cetera. But just between 2000 and 2020, the number of warfare deaths on average using UCDP data is about 90,000 people. Okay? Homicide globally over that same period is about 450,000 people. The average number of toxic pollution deaths annually, so not climate change, right? Non-toxic pollution emissions, any of that. Just toxic pollution emissions is estimated between 8 to 9 million people. Right, so we're talking two orders of magnitude than warfare deaths and an order of magnitude more if you combine warfare and homicide together. And that most of those are wholly mitigatable, right? So it's, and it's a human choice to do it. And that's part of the argument that I make in this is that mm. this what makes this violent too is that it is an active choice and it is a very small group and it is associated with an extreme inequality that's associated mm. with it. Because um, of those seven to nine million deaths, or sorry, eight to nine million deaths, over 90% of those are in low middle income countries. And the vast majority of it is admitted in the pursuit of material demands from those that aren't affected by it, those mm -hmm. 10% mm -hmm. um, or the, the, the countries least affected by it. So even when you can say, well, it's produced in country X, so they're responsible, but it's to meet the material demand for external. And the only reason most of those production facilities are there is because the external countries taking advantage of deregulated environments, mm. right? So as an example, the US used to be a leader in environmental policy in the 1970s and 80s, right? They had the first National Environmental Policy Act, Safe Drinking Water, Clean Water Act, et cetera. What that led to is it a in with in conjunction with globalization led to the displacement of many businesses that were taking advantage of these deregulated environments. Mm -hmm. So they say, "Oh, good, clean for us, but not clean for you." Well, if we value human life equally, which I'm saying I would argue most people don't, but should. There's a normative reason why we should. Mm -hmm. They displace much of that production as per suit. So I see even international environmental policy mm -hmm. as an example, as, and this we're getting back to this peace negotiation as a critical component and asset for environmental peace building in environmental in conflict negotiations. Because this is how, in these instances, how you can use the environment as a vehicle for reconciliation and transitional justice hmm. while regenerating ecologies and economies together. Because there's no reason, and it's again where people sometimes pitch it as antithetical for uh, growth, continuous economic growth, yes. It's been demonstrated where this is not sustainable. Okay? Um, and we're seeing a, a substantial problem with that given questions around global populations currently, et cetera. But 
it's a prime vehicle. International environmental policy can be a prime vehicle for integrating into formal peace negotiations such that there can be interaction between these formerly, formerly combating parties um, in their economic practices and restoring the thing that many have this innate desire to do. Mm-hmm. So and this was uh, typified by the work I was doing in Fonseca with um, former ex-combatants, mostly, most of which uh, from the FARC who are mostly um, either Conquama or YU, just given the demographics of the area, and then in the local community. So these were groups that had substantial tensions between them before, mm-hmm. but had be, as, since the signing of the 2016 peace agreement, and the formation of Compascol, which is an agricultural cooperative from the ex-combatants, and the services that they were providing to the community through economic trade while on, and economic uh, collective bargaining. So they were, for example, taking in the eggs from the community, uh, kind of diffusely produced, into their larger operation in order to sell them collectively. And they ended up getting 20% more per egg for the community members. And so this started the conversations and reconciliation between them, these economic ties. But they were also trading practices, regenerative agriculture practices, to restore the ecologies at the same time. Um, in these areas. So it can offer, and when you can find ways to integrate that into a peace agreement in the policy, but then have environmental peace building calibrated management programs. Mm-hmm. So thinking how to always say, how can we use this particular program to be environmentally friendly while also promoting things of reconciliation, gender equality, um, addressing past inequities. And it's a way to calibrate the program in recognition of those, and usually through collaborative programming um, is the means by which you can use environmental management from these peace agreements to foment peace and transitional justice. That's fabulous that bringing that experience from from Colombia and your personal experience now in, in, in the Mendoza College of Business here at Notre Dame really brings up some interesting questions about the role of the state, but also the role of private sector groups, how to conceptualize the impacts of private sector actors in environmental peace building. So not just producing violence, but also ameliorating or changing their yeah. their policies, which is something that you refer to as toxic diplomacy in a mm-hmm. sense. I guess I'm stretching that concept a little no, bit. No, no, no. Okay. I think because toxic diplomacy to me is not just between states. It's okay. between people. And it's a means of trying to work against this issue that you should be just as concerned about as I'm concerned about. Because, I mean, yes, there are varied ratios of exposure depending on, like, do you have air filters on your homes or what have you to for some of the toxic pollutants. But a lot of it's toxic air pollution that people are exposed to similarly and if they both live in an urban area, as an example. Mm. Um, and also just the connection between humans and the environment, I think, is inseparable. And thinking about how we can work against this issue that can often act as a um, mm-hmm. as something we can both agree upon. So it's a starting point of the conversation to build mm-hmm. trust between us, which is then needed to then work against these other issues, political inequalities, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So in, in thinking about it on the private sector side, yeah. which is interesting because there are many challenges laid against, for example, multinational corporations. And mm-hmm. I think those are exactly correct. Um, more often than not, and given the, the the impacts that these organizations have had, whether it's for, through resource extraction or dirty production, what have you, or just unfettered rates of consumption that mm-hmm. they're that they're feeding, absolutely. But when we think of private sector, we also need to think about small businesses. We need to think about uh, as a smallholder farmer, right, the number one profession in the world. That is a small business. Subsistence farming is a small business. And so when we think about private sector engagement, we need to think about it broadly and think about how it can be used and downscaled. This is one of the things that because everyone has the idea we need to scale for efficiency. Well, one that creates fragilities in the system, substantial fragilities in the system. But it also ends up not producing the greatest value to 
communities to individuals. And so I don't think we have to think of how we get to do away with this. It's how do we do it better and do it to the way that services true human needs, right, and, and flourishing. And so that's when we start thinking of this as a, as a vehicle together. It can also think of it how it can be used to restore ecologies. And so there is a, a book by a person named Paul Hawken that I turned to often called The Ecology of Commerce, um, where he pitches a, whole, a radical reconstruction of what private enterprise is and how it can be used as a tool for good. Following, and so that was, it's been the number one business sustainability book for the last couple of decades. Now, or more recently, he's written two books called Project Drawdown, which is the most robust plan for showing how it can effectively draw down carbon emissions through collective individual decisions. Um, but then regeneration, the next one. So how can production use regenerative praxis? So thinking is an example of regenerative agriculture to restore the land, restore um, ecologies and, and biodiversity, et cetera, while also producing food and, and an even more because you know, people say the efficiency term again, you had even more efficient rates given the amount of productivity per unit of land in production when you use that sort of system, mm-hmm. um, which some might call an adaptive management system or adaptive um, agroforestry. There's different ways that depending on the exact structure who's talking about it that these come together. But that's the way we're thinking about how you can leverage business to do this, but it's a very, very different form of what business means. Fascinatingly, though, that many of the communities that I tend to work in, whether it's in Colombia, or Uganda, Sierra Leone, um, Afghanistan, everyone's concerned with meeting their livelihood needs. And the vast majority of the ways in which people are meeting their livelihood needs is through having a business or interacting in, in commerce in some form or fashion. So this isn't something that can be done away with. It just needs to be dra- radically reconstructed in order to ser- truly service human flourishing while the needs of the environment, um, which, again, I think are inseparable. We're finding the more we've tried to separate the human from our natural environment or the areas around us, in which I think we are truly a part of, not separate of, um, has been only damaging to uh, human from mental health uh, to other health, health maladies, et cetera. So, wow. yeah. so business can be a tool for good, but it has to be, I think we have to think about it differently and approach it differently and putting the concerns of justice and equity at center for that while downscaling and including the environment in that equation of, of justice and equity. That's fascinating. And so in your current research today, um, I wonder if you could tell us about how this is translating into your, your research agenda, into your practice. I know that you've been traveling to different countries. You mentioned Colombia, you mentioned um, Sierra Leone. So maybe you could describe some of the choices, the strategic choices you've made in, in your role as an educator and practitioner involved in these questions of environmental management and justice, including your role at Mendoza, but also your future research. Um, so I, I learned, especially from the experiences in Afghanistan early on, that I would never, uh, always being the outsider in a lot of this, and, and even in some of my work mm-hmm. in the United States when I was working in Puerto Rico and, and other parts of the, the U.S., I found that I, you know, I will never be able to approximate the, the knowledge of the folks that I collaborate with, which I intentionally collaborate with, with folks from the exact areas where I'm working, um, mm-hmm. just as a, as a commitment and that I've made in my own research to, to do that, because for some of this very reason that I won't ever be able to wholly navigate these things. Um, I've also decided that as, as, as a result of that means that the, the, the folks I'm working with lead in what, we, what we're what we doing. Mm-hmm. And what I've found is that if, if I take that approach and then figure out with all the stuff that we have around here, I mean, think about here on campus at Notre Dame, what we have available to us, 
and leverage that in support of the research program that we collaboratively build um, has been the, the best mode of, of operation and has been very effective. So as an example, when I went to work in Sierra Leone with the Conservation Society of Sierra Leone, my, my thought was, oh, I'm going to replicate some of the work I've been doing with the Zambian government um, in southern province on water issues for farming. Because this is the thing I know. I've got it some from Afghanistan, some from there. But when I arrived, my, my um, primary interlocutor, Papani, from the Conservation Society said, Oh, well, you know, here in Tuckley, they're, they're, that's a concern, kind of, but really it's it's the river. The, the river, what are you talking about? The, the river, it's heavily polluted from upstream mining. Fish populations have been decimated and people are concerned about their health from drinking the water, but it's the only primary source. They have to bathe in it and all these other pathways of exposure. Well, should we look at that then? Should that, is that where we shift in here? Yes, we should. Okay, great. Then spend the next four years focusing on that. Um, same in Colombia. There's working with Paso Colombia. Uh, Paso leads the way. Paso chooses. They and they already have so much, such great ongoing work and peace implementation. And mostly because when they think of, they they're focused on using um, the development of uh, economics as as a, as a primary vehicle and, and environmental ends. But they see it as you know, they don't measure profit. They measure impacts broadly. So what is the impact on the community of, for peace in this end? And if as long as that ratio works out, it's not necessarily is it wholly profitable front. Now, yes, we want to be a sustainable business economically, but we also need it to be socially sustainable and ecologically sustainable. And so bringing those together. And so I've intentionally worked with partners and thinking about how can I leverage the assets and resources we have here. It's also part of why you mentioned early on this integration of social and environmental science, what have you. So that for that mining example, I had no idea how to use mass spectrometry in order to measure heavy metals and soils. But I learned, yeah. and that, and that's what we did here. And that's it was it was a because it's an applied research program that I'm trying to develop that is using research or that the research is driven by the questions and the methods are driven by the questions has required that I take on learning these extra skills. But in order that I can be the best servant to the organizations that I'm trying to support, and the organizations we choose to look at the values and and look at the work and look at cultural appropriateness and and as has those then. Yeah, it's kind of full bore. What can I do to, to support your work? And that being open to that and being willing to wholly trust in, in the groups that I'm working with to do that has, has proven to be the most um, effective but also the most rewarding model, rewarding personally and rewarding um, research-wise and can created some really beautiful collaborations and relationships. And so you know, even the projects we choose now that I'm working with, so I started this new course uh, in order to intentionally integrate these questions of regenerating ecologies and economies for livelihoods, or real, that's the course. <laughs> um, and very fortunately, uh, Mendoza College Business has supported me expanding that because it, it had been traditionally MBA students, but now we've got MBA students, MGA students, law students. I've got an ex-student from Global Health this year. Um, I have a PhD in theology this year. So we got a, a range of folks that we're trying to bring in, and we have now new from the Environmental Change Initiative, engineering and science advisors that are going to work with each team to really think of how can we bring to bear the resources of Notre Dame across this spectrum of, of um, humanistic needs to environmental needs, social needs, et cetera, and addressing those engineering needs with them, and bring this complex of tools to the table for our partners and the communities that they serve that we will collectively serve. Wow. And thinking, yeah, how we can do that together. And then they've been extremely supportive of that in recognizing that this is how you truly grow the good in business, which is their their frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the fact that it has grow in there because that's what we're thinking about. Like, the, the, the natural connections of grow anyways, not the uh, economic growth question. So That was great. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And, 
yeah, stay tuned. We'll we'll uh, be talking to you in the future. Thanks Hope again. So. No, thanks for having me. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage. <laughs>